Today I'm delighted to be speaking with Bobby Martin, who sets the relentless standard of design and vision for Champion Design, the agency he founded with Jennifer Kinnan in 2010 in New York. He has partnered with a wide range of clients, such as Amazon, Apple, MTV, and the Studio Museum in Harlem, and he recently illustrated his first children's book, Have I Ever Told You Black Lives Matter? In 2017, Fast Company named Bobby one of the most creative people in business. In 2019, Champion Design was also named one of the 30 most important companies in design. So, Bobby, thanks so much for joining us today. I know you're in, well, obviously, I know you're in New York because there's a five-hour time difference and we're not in the same cities. But anyway, welcome uh, to the podcast. It's great to see you. Thank you for having me, Sean. As I do with all my guests, I ask them about themselves. So tell us a bit about yourself and uh, describe what it is that you do for work. Sure. Well, my name is Bobby C. Martin Jr., and I am a designer. And you know that term is something that can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. But I am really a, a graphic designer that focuses on building brand identity systems. That also means that I just love making logos. And so uh, in 2010, I co-founded a company called Champions Design with uh, one of my best friends, Jennifer Kynan. And we have been building brand identity systems for companies large and small all across the the world really and uh, you know just working being able to work with with people that we really admire and companies that we are really inspired by and uh, and so that's what we do explain to us a little bit about what um, what you mean by a brand identity system sure so a brand identity system so you know when you think about a brand a lot of people are admire a certain brand, love a certain brand, hate a certain brand for a variety of different reasons. But with as a, as a designer, as a graphic designer, when we look at brand, you know, a lot of what we're doing is, is one, thinking about a logo and, and, and the ways that people would, would visually uh, connect with the brand. But then we also think about all of the different things that you encounter when you are engaging with a different product or organization or even choosing to buy a certain magazine or book. So that is creating the whole feeling and the world in which these uh, brands live and, and why people then trust or distrust them so much. And uh, I think hopefully the people and the companies that we're working with people will trust uh, fairly well. But uh, what we're able to do is, is think about all of the different visual cues, the symbols and the photography and the illustration and the color palette and how all of that works together with language and messaging and how companies and brands speak to one another and speak to their audience. And so that's that's what we do. We get to uh, really help brands to put their best foot forward. There's a lot in there to unpack. I'm going to take a step back and ask you then, what's the thing that excites you most about what it is you do? Well, you know, I guess there's a there's a few different things. So let me see if I can focus it a little bit. I grew up as like a kid that liked to draw. And when you grow up as a kid that liked to draw, you're just trying to figure out what to do with it. How do you make a living doing something that you love? And I learned, uh, I guess, very early on through university and, and through uh, graduate school that I could take kind of big ideas and whittle them down into one visual component that helped to tell that story. And so I love you know taking the complexity of a 
of an organization and figuring out how to visually represent it with a, a logo. And, uh, and I just love doing it. I love creating logos. I love drawing. I love making. I love the challenge of it. I love the challenge of figuring out how you take something that means so many different things and is doing so, so much and, and figuring out how to focus that into a symbol that people then uh, identify it by and, uh, and, and relate to. And, and so it's something that I, I really enjoy doing. The other part of it is I get to work with people. I get to work with so many different people, different kinds of people, different backgrounds. And, and so I really enjoy, I think I'm fairly extroverted, fairly extroverted. So I, I really enjoy meeting different people and learning so much about different industries and organizations and the things that they're doing. It's really every project that I get is an education. And so I've been able to become really good at Jeopardy, mostly from just doing my job. I guess, depending on who you ask, some of my drawings now can still look like children's drawings. Yeah, but I think the similarity actually to what a, a child would draw is the whittling something down to its most basic forms and having that still communicate a certain story or feeling. And so the, the actual communication and the feeling is really hard to pull off. And so that's what I've done all my studies in and and continue to work on and refining how I do it every day. However, the the connection from you know, thinking of something and then making it come to life is quite similar to you know, the very basics that we learned as a child. And uh, and so now you know the things that I'm doing is are, are embedded with metaphor and semiotics and and uh, and and different hierarchies and scale. Um, but there's there's definitely there's there's definitely a similarity in the uh, the things that I tap into when I'm making a logo that go back to my childhood. And I think that that's what I enjoy so much about it. And what about the the key messaging? Because I, I guess the point, as you've touched upon about a logo, is this communicating to an audience and making that audience want to engage with your product or service. Uh, what is the process? Well, that is really where the magic happens. That, that's, that's why we get the big bucks, as they say. So the you know that's that's just a really difficult thing to pull off and it's really difficult to pull off i think con consistently uh but what we do is we we ask a lot of questions to learn as much about the company as possible learn as much about what they're hoping to communicate why why they're important why do people even care about you you know those are the types of questions that we're asking and it also helps others that we're working with to have to figure out how to talk about those things. And when we are having these discussions, they're really just kind of a back and forth. We're able to then tap into intangibles that we can then build into a story that we are helping people to understand or we can we can help to communicate a certain um, 
thing that a, a brand is trying to do to be able to reach a wider audience or make a bigger impact. I think the what's really uh, fun about the work that I do is it's not selling all the time. Sometimes it is just clarifying a message and, and communicating better. Sometimes it is making something beautiful and luxurious. Sometimes it is to help to stand out from the others that are in the same playing field. And so in order to do that, that's where the strategy comes in. That's where we are asking a lot of questions to be able to figure out what is most important. And then how do we do that with visual cues? How do we do that with iconography and language and even color palette? And and so these are really simple things as we talk about like drawing and color and painting and but it's all visual expression that then helps to signify very different uh, things and it taps into people's emotions in a lot of different ways. And and so whether it is working with a person who is running for president or it is helping a restaurant to communicate the type of experience that someone's going to have when they come there. Like these are all things that we're able to do really just with the visual language that we're creating for a brand. How's the world of design changed over the past 18 months? Oh my goodness. Well, the 18 months it's changed considerably. And you know what, what I think is so great about the way that design has changed over the past 18 months is how the average person has started to understand the value of something being well-designed and the value of easy, intuitive user interface and the value of having, like five years ago, 10 years ago, we didn't have the digital programs that allow us to even be able to have the conversation that we're having now. So technology has been the thing that's made such a huge impact over the last five years and a huge impact over the last 18 months because it has allowed us to continue to connect with each other even when we are barricaded in our homes. It allows us to be able to uh, have family members stay in touch with their children and their grandchildren. It allows us to continue to, to, to learn and to teach technology has allowed that and and design of that technology has made that experience easier, better and more efficient. And now the the conversations that we're having is well what is the role of communications going for? What is the role of an office? What is the role of getting together in a physical space versus being able to continue to do this virtually? And so those are answers that we've yet to, those are questions, those are questions that we've yet to answer, but that's what design is, is now having all these questions and figuring out what can be done to actually make the experience richer. And, and, and so over the past 18 months, I think design has, has brought people closer. I think the, um, I think the, the the things we've been communicating about and designing for has changed so much. Um, whether it is dealing with the pandemic or it's dealing with social and racial and uh, uh, gender-based kind of reckonings, 
Like all of these things have really driven the need for design and for communication and for connection. I think what we often forget is that design is this all-encompassing entity. That's not only about designing um, something that is visual. It's, you know, like you've said, it's designing a system and that system impacts on the ways in which we engage. Um, and that, on the, I suppose, the, the front end of that are the visuals um, because that's what we see. And we often underestimate the... Um, the processes and systems that are put in place to in, in order for us to engage with those front-end systems. Has imagery changed or the way we use imagery changed? Well, in, imagery has changed. I would argue that some of the biggest influences on imagery is social media because that is how so many of us are consuming media nowadays. And most of that media is embedded with images. So if you look at some of the most, if you look at some of the most successful and popular social media platforms, they are image forward. And what has done is it has affected how, um, how people are going about their day and how, what they're putting out into the world. Uh, so having these curated images that they're putting out on, on Instagram. Or if you look at something like TikTok, how there's these full-on visual kind of stories that people are performing. And that is so different than anything we could have even imagined five years ago uh, with, 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 uh, with TikTok. And, uh, and so the way that we're consuming media and imagery is, is evolving because technology is evolving so quickly. And, uh, and, and so what I found also is just the, the speed in which you are, the, the speed at which you are, are consuming the media is so much quicker uh, because, you know, it used to be, whether it's a billboard or, you know, back when I, in my generation, sitting in front of a television for, you know, two way too many hours a day and, and, you know, have it being bombarded with commercial TV, commercial effort, TV commercial is how we were uh, um, kind of looking at imagery. But now you just flip through it, you scroll through it, you, you, um, you skip past it. And so um, I think the, the speed in which we are consuming imagery has really affected how clear things need to be or how, or, or how loud something might need to be. Or, or, or how quiet something might need to be. So I think that the way that we are consuming imagery really affects what the images are that we are seeing. Mm. And I think thinking about loud and um, loud and soft, I mean, there's often those terms are used in branding um, with logos. You know, the bigger the logo, the louder you shout, the smaller the logo, the more discreet you're going to be. It seems there's some sort of similarity in that, isn't there? Well, probably. I think there's there's definitely um, there's definitely it's it's all kind of wrapped in different cues that tap into people's emotions. And the um, I think what what I have found that is it's become really uh, successful is the ability to differentiate or the ability the ability to um, to be flexible depending on a certain scenario or situation. And I find that uh, right now, at least, and this constantly evolves, but uh, I think right now, 
the ability for brands and, and organizations to be flexible with how they present content and information and visuals is, uh, is, is so important because of the, the variety of ways that people are able to then uh, dictate how they want to receive content. So that flexibility is so key and that there, uh, there might be one, one brand might be able to be loud in one place and really, really quiet in another. And having that ability is is what has made um, I think a lot of the work that I've done really successful because we're starting to notice some of these trends and some of these innovations, and then we can try to get out in front of it a little bit with how we are developing our work. In the conversation I had with Jessica Halfand, uh, we were talking about um, a load of these luxury brands. Um, in fact, I sent her a little. Um, snapshot of how they've changed their logos and they were they were quite um distinct before i won't mention them all but i'm sure you can guess who they are and they're all now so similar that they've really lost their identity and you'd think now more than ever you'd want them to have their identity well you know it's re it's really interesting i think i it, it's so hard to to know what these different um Kind of luxury brands are thinking as they're creating something. I think there's part of like being different, but being different within a certain world. Like we could be different, but we can't be that different. Uh, and and some of it might be keeping up with the Joneses. There is also um, there's there's a constant kind of ebb and flow to the way that uh, the way that brands operate and the way that they are presenting themselves and. So when you see, um, I'm, I'm going to pivot a little bit, but I, I read an article recently about how skinny jeans are out and how Celine is bringing back these extra wide pants. And so there's no real reason for skinny jeans to be out other than they don't make me look very good. But um, just the fact that now what's what can we do to be more different and stand out and so then they they switch to the extra wide and i think that that's quite similar in the world of brand identity as well so if you if you have everything uh super ornate and elaborate and feels like it has a a long history and heritage then you might do something completely different to shake up the status quo and then you get followed and then the same thing might happen in a few years from now when you go back to something being a little bit more elaborate and, and celebrating heritage. I think the other thing that we're looking at right now is how heritage has been uh, often celebrated, but how often now when you actually dig into things that have been done with long legacy brands, then you can see how um, certain decisions were made to be exclusive or uh, in some cases, you know, disrespectful or, uh, or or not really considerate of of all those that are out there. And so, I think when you think about organizations that have been around for fifty years, uh, eighty years, a hundred years, or more, what have they done over those past hundred years? And how does the the visuals that they're presenting in twenty twenty one reflect some of the poor decisions that might have been made in nineteen sixty one? So, you know, I think what there also could be is the opportunity for brands to completely rid themselves of of something, of a connection that uh, a, 
a past might might bring and then present themselves to the world in a in a completely different way which is maybe i'm taking this a little bit too far but that's that's some of the the things that i consider when i'm looking at some of these changes it's so hard for me to kind of separate a logo that i love from the experience that i've had with that brand over the last 30 years and so if there's something that i've seen and i really have have been engaged with this brand or, or love it or saw it as this kind of um uh, ambition that I had, like, it, it, am I in love with like that feeling, or am I in love with just the kind of beautiful little symbol? And I don't know. I think some it, it's hard for me to actually separate the two sometimes. Hmm. And I think that's the point, isn't it? You don't, you know, you don't want to separate the two. Right. Exactly. Tell us what inspires you. Well, I get really inspired by the the different brands, the different people that I'm working with for, for the different projects that we do. So um, I, I, that may sound a little cliche, but I, um, when we start working with a different company, we go in with certain assumptions and biases. And what I get really inspired by is learning and, and digging deeper into these products and, 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 and companies and brands and learning things that that we didn't know before and then i get so excited to then figure out how to how to celebrate that how to how to tell that how to to bring others into that journey that i've just experienced and uh, and so i get really inspired like when i'm trying to think about a, a project that i'm working on those are the things that are really driving me those are the things that i get really excited about um and so that's when i'm thinking about you know products and, and, and brand and, and companies. I think in design, you know, one of the things that is really exciting to see now is, is um, I've always been a fan of, of typefaces and fonts and typography and the use of them. And to see how popular type, type design, custom bespoke type design is now is a huge it's just, it's, it's, you could have never imagined this, you know, 10 years ago, even, you know, especially 15, 20 years ago, that there'd be so many different design foundries or people that are out there just nerding out on, on different letter forms. And that's what I think goes back to what you were just showing with the um, you know, logos that it went from being these beautiful, distinctive marks to then being something really simple. Uh, I particularly love like the, something that has a little bit more craft to it. I, I particularly love something that feels like it's been a little bit more labored over. Uh, and and so those are the things that I get inspired by, I think now in, in the design world, because I see how um, technology is starting to make an impact in how and how type and type design is, is being used. And you can see it in so many of the different things that we interact with every day. I'm yearning for a little bit more of the, the things that you can see that were done by hand because there are certain uh, serendipitous moments that uh, that can happen that then are these happy accidents. And it's harder to get to that when you're working in the precision that, um, that uh, digital platforms can sometimes create. I was um, teaching a class at St. Martin's in London. We were looking at dying crafts, and one of those dying crafts was sign writing. Yeah. Which, you know, not dissimilar. No, not a, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and we recently worked with this incredible sign painter out of Jamaica 
who just like what was so great about the the work is is seeing how um, these idiosyncrasies come out in in the creating the letter forms, and, and that's what makes it so fascinating and, and distinctive. And I I'm, I love it. Throughout the podcast series, you know, what has often come up is the handwriting of the craftsman. The hand of the craftsman is always evident in their work, isn't it? Yes. Yep. So it would be remiss of me not to talk about luxury at all. How do how does design communicate luxury? Well, design can communicate luxury in, in so many ways. Uh, a lot of it can be through maybe I think some of it is through the way something looks and the way something feels. So oftentimes when we're looking in the print world of whether it's packaging booklets and, and others, we can rely on certain finishes and, and different uh, tactile changes that can reflect um, quality or uh, and, and luxury. Um, color can also be a huge component with luxury where um, when you look at packaging, I remember when, um, you know, Apple's packaging from the very beginning really has always been looked at as being just the, the very best. And what uh, we did when I was, when I was working in London, actually, when I was working at Nokia, one of the things that we learned in, in, and doing some case studies is we found that Apple really did all their packaging in black or white. That was it. And that, that kind of black, that beautiful, rich black package felt luxurious. And so then what we started to see is all these other brands that were using black in their packaging to make something feel high end and make something feel uh, luxurious and and special, and what the the challenge was is then doing something different, but still making it feel luxury. So how could you then signify uh, luxury while um, not using black or white because those are already taken, and so that's that's where different finishes or or a, a slickness of photography and art direction or um, or thoughtfulness uh, uh, in 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 concept would come through, and you could start to see how how that could signify luxury in a in uh, maybe the most basic ways. I think now I look at uh, kind of the bigger stories that are being told, and when I look at fashion brands, the the way that um, right now it seems that uh, partnerships. Are are just huge collaborations are huge, and the so it's it's not enough just to have your own brand. That brand has to then connect with a a trendsetter that is out there in the world, um, kind of affecting change and 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 culture. And when they bring the two together, then there's this moment of absolute luxury because it's rare. And it's it's a limited edition that people line around the block to get, or you know, as soon as it flips to 10 a.m. in the morning, you click in your your app or your phone to try to purchase something, and it's gone like that. 
And I think that the kind of limited nature of that collaboration is part of what makes it so luxurious. And so we see more and more collaborations happening. And some of them are really exciting. And, and I think at some point we'll probably get to be tired of it. I'll add the slightly contentious bit. Are those experiences really luxury or are they purely marketing to get people to buy more and more product? Well, it has a lot to do with it. Yes. I mean, there, there's, I think there's the, the really kind of proactive marketing and the, the thinking that's gone into setting up this feeling of, of, uh, of limited. So therefore people want it. And then there's the, the actual branding and the, the graphic design of it that then helps to deliver on that promise of it being luxurious um, or, or, or rare. So yes, branding can have a lot of impact in the, the selling of a product and whether that product feels luxurious or feels like it is um, something that is accessible to everyone. I, I don't know. I'm I'm not one that's convinced by these um, by the collaborations that the luxury brands put together because I sometimes don't find them to be. Uh, I find them to be slightly disingenuous. Well, I, I think that that's I I can understand that and and because especially with how often they happen now they it almost feels like a a a model that someone has figured out and then others are just trying to outdo each other in that same model and and so there is a disingenuousness to it because it where is that collaboration coming from is it coming from a brand that traditionally has had a collaborative spirit or is it just be coming from the fact that this is what we know works? And and so I, I totally agree with you in the fact that it can it can fall flat and 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 not work. That doesn't it doesn't mean that it's it's not working. I mean I see I see more and more of it, um, but I do think that there's going to be a point when it plateaus, and uh, because there's the rareness. And the the, um, the the feeling of I'm the only one to, to to have this experience. You know, I'm just thinking about your own campaign that you did for Carnegie Hall. Yeah, like you might go to Carnegie Hall and, and have a one-of-a-kind experience because it's live music, because it's at this venue that is only at 57th and 7th Avenue. Uh, and, and you can't the I think you can't have that same live experience in, in the same same way. What we're trying to do at Carnegie Hall is actually take that and bring it to more people. So it being more uh, inclusive rather than exclusive. And and so I think that that's been what's been so uh, in, joyful about working with um, uh, Carnegie Hall is is how to take something that has typically been seen as exclusive and and bring it to more where i think in the world of fashion we see the opposite i think the 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 idea of exclusives has, has really driven so much of this work the other thing is that um, the the things that so many are doing whether it's through social media or just themselves and and is whatever you're engaging in a lot of times you're thinking about what it says about you so whether you enjoy uh, the the 
the fashionness of something or you en- enjoy the artfulness of fashion, it it's also maybe so much more about the fact that I have these pieces, what that says about me. It says I'm cool. It says that I am rich. It says that I am important. Whatever it might be, it's a, it's a lot of it goes back to the value that uh, you people think that it says about them. And I, I mean, that's, I think people should be able to do that. People should be able to, to do that if that's what they want to do. Uh, and at the same time, I think that there's, um, I, I think that there is the responsibility of companies to, uh, to, to know when it is becoming, uh, uh, things that might hurt the environment or becoming things that are detrimental to, you know, to, to different cultures and, and different people. And, and I think that that's where it starts to have a real impact in the world. I think if it's, if it's just creating something and it doesn't hurt anybody, that's one thing. But I think when you start to look at the constant churn, what does that actually, what, what value does that bring and how is that helping us in, in our future. There's been a lot of stuff recently about appropriation, especially by um, big fashion companies, you know, that they're going and they're taking or they're being influenced by um, certain things um, and or even copying, you know, emergent designers. Um, and that's, you know, you I suppose one wonders, you know, why they would do that. You know, they are talent. They've got talent pools amongst their own, you know, um, employee base and you'd wonder why they would think it appropriate to not only copy but also appropriate yeah you know i i i'm not sure that they're going out deliberately doing it and saying let's copy this and build on that or we can appropriate i i'm pretty sure that those aren't the conversations that are having i my guess is that they're making things and they aren't being as considerate about where it's coming from as they should be and that's the responsibility of these companies in the past it used to used to be influenced by um different cultures and it was okay to be influenced by them but but now that's changed hasn't it i think the the question is is it okay to be influenced by these other cultures so you know i think the past is really hairy and so just the fact that it's been done in the past doesn't mean that it was done and it was okay and what uh, I think some do better than others is that if there is an influence to throw all of the weight of their global brand behind magnifying that culture and and helping and and supporting and being able to put the the scale of a of a global brand behind whether it's a fashion designer that used to design for hip hop. Or whether it is for um, you know a, a a cause, I think the the what companies can do is use their platform for good, and that doesn't mean that they have to go around being kind of a uh, kind of a, a green, crunchy, you know, uh, kind of company, but it does allow for the influences to be something that both are benefiting from. And I mean, this is could be totally controversial. I mean, but I I do feel like having uh, if if you're a company that has resources and and assets that many need, 
can you can you help to to provide scholarships to bring more people from those communities through schools? Can you help to and and very proactively bring uh, those influences into your design departments and your and your major uh, um, executive you know, boardrooms? And I think that that's where the the rubber meets the road. I mean, so, some some do. I think you know if you you look at um, you know, some companies who even from many, many years ago and generations ago, created foundations. If you look at uh, Ford Motor Company, uh, in, in, where they created the Ford Foundation, which is one of the most successful uh, foundations globally that is creating um, you know, a, a huge impact in, in, um, in, in social impact and social justice and, and the arts. And, uh, and, and Ford did that by going against the grain. There were many that would say, that would say I'm not going to, purchase more Ford vehicles. And I'm going to tell all my friends and they still have this foundation that is now worth, you know, billions and is out there just, you know, doing good out in the world. And, and so not everybody's going to do that, but I think there are some that have, and, um, and I think it takes, it takes guts, it takes balls, it takes uh, a lot of, um, you know, pushing ideas uphill when you know a lot of people don't want that to happen, and you know sticking with it and being persistent, and so I, I, I think that there we're starting to see some companies do that. The NBA just started a foundation called the NBA Foundation, which is starting to to um, put put funds into uh, the different communities of uh, underserved communities. So I think that it's starting to happen in some cases, and in some cases it's just completely you know gone over people's heads. I wanted to ask you about how you define or what terminology you use to describe your work do you think of yourself as a graphic designer are you a visual communicator are you a brander if there's any <laughs> well you know a black man being a brander is like a i don't know that's a little scary um and so i i don't think i would ever uh call myself a brander i do work in the world of, of branding um, that maybe came out wrong <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I work in the world of branding. I'm a graphic designer. Um, I, I'm a strategist. I'm an illustrator. I, I, I've been able to wear a lot of hats. And, um, you know, I think what happens, it's kind of like music where you, um, you, well, I, I love the music that I grew up with or that I had certain really kind of key experiences with. And and so that's always the music that I go back to when you know on a rainy day, and so the same way with graphic designer. That's what I studied growing up, and and that was the way that my profession and 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 the thing that I was studying was was called. And so I that's what I go back to uh, when I'm talking about the the work that I do is graphic design. I think even the term graphic design now has expanded so much. I mean now a lot of people call it visual design and that encompasses more things because then it's not just like the creating of logos and typefaces and color but then you're thinking about the ux and ui of of interface design and the way that people are engaging with um uh, different products and software so i think that it's continuing to expand and as it expands we have more terminology and the nomenclature around it uh, continues to expand as well and you know i think you know, I don't want to be a dinosaur, so I have to continue to be open to change. Uh, but the, you know, the way that I talk about it, I, I often go back to, you know, what I studied in college, what I studied in grad school, and maybe the first couple of jobs that I had. And that's what really 
um, kind of formed the way that I uh, think about the profession. You know, we've been saying all along that there's so many platforms that you have to consider now. How do you con- how do you maintain currency in the work that you're doing? Because you're having to keep up with all these constant changes, specifically technological changes. Well, I, I think the the um, the the thing you have to do is is just be open to change. Um, one of the artists that we work with, Hank Willis Thomas, says the most revolutionary the most revolutionary thing a person can do is be open to change. And I think that that's what we just have to constantly do. And and you know, when I <laughs> I always laugh at my my parents, my 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 family, uh, because they they can be luddite sometimes and just really takes forever to like you know figure out how to use a phone or whatever it is and i just like can't imagine myself in that situation because i love technology and i'm always into it but things are changing so much and so quickly and so often that it's hard to keep up and so then i find myself saying well you know well i use this software but what is that thing over there called sketch or figma or XD, what are these different things? I've never used those before. And then I have to like sit down and figure out what they are and how to use them. And so then you start to understand how people can fall behind and and fumble around just trying to make a FaceTime call. So I think, you know, I don't know, you know, how to address it. I just know that being open to change and letting change be a part of who I am is uh, is is my way of trying to you know, keep in step with the things that are happening. Mm. And I think the point about being open to changes is an important one. Many of the brands resisted, you know, engaging virtually, and they're now having to do that. Um, And we increasingly see them using different kinds of tech to engage the consumer. What I really enjoyed seeing, sometimes taking part in, is how when being forced to do it, we had to create new ways. That's where real innovation was happening. That's where you could have full-on parties all across you know, Zoom or, or you know, different kind of streaming platforms. And in some ways, we would have never have done it if we didn't have to go through this ability of being kind of forced to have to figure it out. And I think that that um that was was really a big moment in 2020 when uh we had to continue to figure out how to thrive and survive and connect with people and 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 it was it, it's kind of like the pressure of the world was was on us and what would happen would we like shrivel up and die or do we create diamonds. And I think that that's really what ended up happening is there were some new gems that were just being developed the whole time that now we're really um, happy to have gone through to to see. But you had to really go through it. And the only way uh, out is through. So I think think that, that, that being forced to deal with it has really helped us to actually move leap years ahead. I mean, we were, we were one of the companies that we, we, work virtually here and there but you know the whole kind of work from home thing was something that we we didn't totally embrace and uh and then when we had to um then we figured it out and now it's like this is what we've been doing all along 
And, you know, we had to figure out how to create, continue to create really high quality work while not seeing each other in, in the same room. And, uh, and I, I think that it's completely changed the trajectory of how we're going to work as a company. And I think, I mean, we've seen that happen in so many different industries. And I think that's the good thing that's come out of such um, a tough couple of years. Would you describe your work as luxury? No, I wouldn't describe my work as luxury. I think that there are some luxurious uh, parts of my work. I think that there are times when I'm working with someone or something and we can make it feel luxurious. Um, I, I would describe the work that I'm doing let me rephrase that. I would describe the ability to do my work and the way that I'm doing my work right now a luxury because I'm happy doing it. I love doing it. I'm able to do it my way every day. Um, and I'm just lucky enough to be able to do it with some fantastic partners in-house as well as some fantastic partners out of house, fantastic like uh, clients that we've been able to work with. And that is a true luxury. So I will call that a luxury, but I, I don't, I would call my work and the things that we create luxurious. I want to um, now again, kind of shift sideways again, because I mentioned in the um, introduction that you recently illustrated a children's book, Have I Ever Told You Black Lives Matter? Tell us about that. Oh, sure. Let's see. Now, how does that fit into luxury? No, I think the the um, that children's book was something that popped up uh, really out of the blue. And I, knowing that um, we had just gone through such a tough year in 2020 uh, from the pandemic, but also with this real kind of social and racial reckoning that at least especially in the United States, but hopefully globally, we, we've been going through. And on top of all that, I had a young uh, son at home. I had an infant who's now a toddler. And, uh, and so it was an opportunity for me to kind of connect several worlds, my world of graphic design and illustration with the things that I felt were just weighing so heavily on all of us, which is the senseless brutality and disrespect of people of color, especially of African descent, all throughout the streets of, uh, in the United States, but globally, uh, as well as being able to do something that would start to build a foundation, a solid foundation for my son. And, uh, and so, you know, it's a luxury that all of those things overlapped in this one opportunity. And so I was able to take part in working with um, a publisher, uh, Tilbury House Press, and a just wonderful uh, writer and scholar named uh, Shani Mahiri King, uh, who uh, is a professor down at the University of Florida in Gainesville. And uh, he had uh, written this, this copy that really spoke about the contributions of uh, Black people in America over the past uh, centuries and many of them often overlooked. And so how could I, as a designer, be able to provide focus and highlight 
to many, many of those names, uh, as well as some of the things that they do, and do it in a way that kind of express the intent of the story that uh, Shani uh, had written, as well as do it in a way that would help to stand out so that when someone is reading it, it feels like the experience that that you would uh, want people to to remember and 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 kind of tap into. So I just really enjoyed it. Uh, I was able to use a little bit of my illustration uh, background, a lot of my love for typography and and color, and and just kind of bring it all into this really um, fun uh, book for I would say for maybe older young for young kids, but older young kids. Like it's uh it's probably like those that are in uh, later in elementary school and, and early middle school, I think was kind of the right age group, uh, but also for adults. It was, it's just a really fun project to have to uh, get to do. Yeah. No, I, I just read about it. I thought that's an amazing thing to do. Um, and have, I guess having the time to do it. Oh, well, I never had time to do it. We did it, but, but it was like, you know, the, the lucky thing uh, was, was my, like, we were pretty busy uh, and stayed pretty busy all all year round last year. Uh, mostly, you got to stay busy because you know that you are you are you know um, putting food on the table for so many people, and so we had to stay busy. and uh, And so this book came up, and it, it wasn't something that was really going to help put food on many people's table, but I knew it was important. So I was able to do that kind of on top of the day to day more lucrative brand work that we were doing. Uh, but it was uh, it, it was a lot of fun. It took a, a good amount of time because it's just really intricate, and we were constantly evolving. the 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 book was evolving as we were working on it because you know it was written in a certain way. And then when I started to to bring it to life with with uh, illustration and type, then you know that would kind of affect how people would read it. So then we would do some refinement on, on how it would read and things like that. So it was this really fantastic collaboration uh, between the publisher and, uh, and Shani and I. I mean, how, how would you think one would reconcile this, these issues around environmental concerns and luxury lifestyles? Well, I think you need to bake that into the core competency of the company. And so uh, needing to like I, I love fashion. I love uh, um, jewelry. I love cars. I, you know, I'm I'm just like a fan of all of this. And so I'm a, I'm just as much a a um, <laughs> you know a, 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 I like it. But I also I think we can we can critique it and and help help that it continues to get better. And what I have found is there are some companies that will put sustainability kind of right there front and center in the work that they're doing and uh, and and I I just really admire that because oftentimes it takes longer it's more expensive and so to to be able to do that really takes true commitment there is also this idea and, and I, I've learned a lot of this from my students at uh, the School of Visual Arts in the MFA design program in New York because they will often do thesis projects where they're bringing up this idea of fast fashion. And so I learned a lot through working with these students as they're trying to create these products that address, you know, fast, fast fashion. And I don't, I don't know the full theory around it all or, or 
but but some of the things that have come up were, you know, instead of constantly making things that are cheap that people would buy and then discard and then buy another thing, is there value in having things that might be slightly more expensive but that that would last a little bit longer that you that then have a longer life cycle because then it it doesn't stack up in the in the um uh in the in the trash bins and in the and the water supplies and you're not using as much in in kind of the, building a, a huge carbon footprint so um you know that's something that has kind of stood out to me in some of the conversations I've had with some of my those students recently that I'm really I've been interested in and thinking a lot about because I had to think about myself as a consumer and what I'm doing and what I'm doing as a consumer because as what I'm doing as a consumer affects what someone's going to do as a as a as a brand right so if I'm constantly buying this stuff then there's a market for it and so there's the supply meets the demand and uh, and 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 so what we need to do is then figure out like how do we better focus our dollars our our pounds on on uh brands that are actually conscious of the the impact that they're making out there in the world and doing something about it and you can see that now even like when you look at um air travel and 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 how they're trying to offset some of the uh, some of the carbon footprints, you can see that in the big companies of Amazon and, and Apple and others and what they're doing. And I think there's, there's some that are doing it maybe more for lip service than others. And, and what we want to do is figure out as consumers, how we can use our dollars to make the world a better place. So, you know, it's, it's figuring out how we can say, you know, these companies that are just creating a lot of, of, uh, things that we're going to buy and throw away. Instead, let's buy less, maybe pay a little bit more for it and um, and keep it around for a little bit longer. And, uh, you know, and I think that I can say that because I'm I have a company, I run a company, a, a business. I'm thinking about other people. But, I, I, you know, the 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 reality is how do we do that and make it accessible for 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 everyone so that the those that are don't have to spend tons of money on stuff can still. Uh, you know, uh, make a, a positive impact in the world, and I think that that's the the big you know question that that companies are going to have to address. Mm. And the luxury is, I think, you know, having the choice, but also making the choice, isn't it? Making the choices is, is yeah. yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. which is a tough one. Yeah, maybe design can one. do something about that. And that's your job. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to end um, the way I end all the podcast chats with asking, what is your luxury? Well, my luxury in the past uh, two years has been that I've been, for the most part, stuck at home with, uh, with my son and with my partner, and we had to uh, we've had the ability to spend so much time with him, and I know that it's something that we're not going to be able to do for much longer. But I was so happy to be able to just spend every single day with my son, and I think I would hope that it's made a really profound impact on his formative years. Um, I was able to do that for a couple of reasons: one, because we were forced to be inside, um, 
and we were able as a as a company i was able to figure out how to make it work so that i could spend time with him and still get my work done and that was just a huge luxury because i know that um in running my company i have that flexibility but so many people don't and i just really cherish that uh the past uh uh moments those past years that I, moments that I've been able to spend with him um, because I've also had on the other side of things I've had some tragedy over the past couple of years that you know many people have had and I've had to deal with that and it just has made me really take things into um, uh, perspective and and uh, just enjoy the the time that we've all been able to spend so that's my true luxury and I I hope I can continue to 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 have that be a focus and maybe it becomes something that's not a luxury it just becomes the norm we'll see bobby c martin jr thank you so much for joining us it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much sean thank you for having me thank you bobby thank you to our partner intellect books thank you for listening and join us next time on the in pursuit of luxury podcast